If you're enjoying Send Me to Sleep, make sure that you've followed the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and any other podcast player you use. Also, if you have a moment, please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. All of this really helps the show reach new listeners. And you never know, your review may convince someone to listen and lead them to a good night's rest, which I hope you all agree is worth sharing. Thanks so much for your listenership and support. Welcome to Send Me to Sleep, the place to find a good night's rest. My name's Andrew, and I'm so pleased you've joined me tonight and taken this time for yourself to ensure you get a peaceful night's sleep. Tonight, I'll be reading The Merry Adventures of Robin Hood, The Chase of Robin Hood, Part 2, by Howard Pyle. In the previous part, Robin had to separate from his men in flight from the king's guards. In tonight's story, Robin enacts his cunning plan of escape. If you haven't already, find a nice place to get cosy. Take a deep, relaxing breath. And settle your body in whatever way feels most comfortable. Now all you'll need to do is follow the sound of my voice. So let your eyes fall heavy. And your breath soften. As we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. Robin had not gone more than three furlongs when he suddenly came to the brow of a hill and saw beneath him another band of the king's men, seated in the shade along the roadside in the valley beneath. Seeing that they had not caught sight of him, he turned and ran back whence he came, knowing that it was better to run the chance of escaping those fellows that were yet in the thickets than to rush into the arms of those in the valley. So back he ran with all speed, and had gotten safely past the thickets when the seven men came forth into the open road. They raised a great shout when they saw him, such as the hunters give when the deer breaks cover. But Robin was then a quarter of a mile or more away from them, coursing over the ground like a greyhound. He never slackened his pace, but ran along mile after mile till he had come to Mackworth, over beyond Derwent River, nigh to Derby Town. Here, seeing that he was out of present danger, he slackened his running, and at last sat him down beneath a hedge, where the grass was the longest and the shade was the coolest, there to rest and catch his wind. By my soul, Robin, quoth he to himself, 
That was the narrowest miss that e'er thou dost hast in all thy life. I do say most solemnly that the feather of that wicked shaft tickled mine ear as it whizzed past. This same running hath given me a most craving appetite for victuals and drink. Now I pray Saint Dustin that he send me speedily some meat and beer. It seems as though Saint Dustin was like to answer his prayer, for along the road came plodding a certain cobbler, one quince of Derby, who had been to take a pair of shoes to a farmer nigh Kurt Langley, and was now coming back home, with a fair boiled capon in his pouch, and a stout bottle of beer by his side, which same the farmer had given him for joy of such a stout pair of shoon. Good Quince was an honest fellow, but his wits were somewhat of the heavy sort, like unbaked dough, so that the only thing that was in his mind was three shillings sixpence half penny for thy shoon, good quince, three shillings sixpence half penny for thy shoon, and this travelled round and round inside of his head, without another thought getting into his noodle, as a pea rolls round and round inside an empty quart pot. Hello, good friend, quoth Robin from beneath the hedge, when the other had gotten nigh enough. Whither away so merrily this bright day? Hearing himself so called upon, the cobbler stopped, and seeing a well-clad stranger in blue, he spoke him in seemly wise. Give ye good den, fair sir, and I would say that I come from Kirk Langley, where I had sold my shoon and got three shillings sixpence half penny for them, in as sweet money as thou sawest, and honestly earned too, I would have thee know. But an I may be so bold, thou pretty fellow, what dost thou there beneath the hedge? Marry, quoth Merry Robin, I sit beneath the hedge here to drop salt on the tails of golden birds, but in sooth, thou art the first chick of any worth I had seen this blessed day. At these words, the cobbler's eyes opened big and wide, and his mouth grew round with wonder, like a knothole in a board fence. Slack a day, quoth he. Look ye now, I had never seen those same golden birds. And dost thou in sooth find them in these hedges, good fellow? Prithee, tell me, are there many of them? I would fain find them my own self. Aye, truly, quoth Robin, they are as thick here as fresh herring in Cannock Chase. Look ye now, said the cobbler, all drowned in wonder. And dost thou in sooth catch them by dropping salt on their pretty tails? Yea, quoth Robin, but this salt is of an odd kind, let me tell thee, for it can only be gotten by boiling down a quarter of moonbeams in a wooden platter, and then one hath but a pinch. But tell me now, thou witty man, 
What hast thou gotten there in that pouch by thy side, in that pottle? At these words, the cobbler looked down at these things of which Merry Robin spoke, for the thought of the golden bird had driven them from his mind, and it took him some time to scrape the memory of them back again. Why, said he at last, in one is good march beer, and in the other is a fat capon. Truly, Quince the cobbler will have a fine feast this day, and I not mistaken. But tell me, good Quince, said Robin, hast thou a mind to sell those things to me? For the hearing of them sounds sweet in mine ears. I will give thee these gay clothes of blue that I have upon my body, and ten shillings to boot for thy clothes, and thy leather apron, and thy beer, and thy capon. What sayest thou, bully boy? Nay, thou dost jest with me, said the cobbler, for my clothes are coarse and patched, and thine are of fine stuff and pretty. Never a jest do I speak, quoth Robin. Come, strip thy jacket off, and I will show thee, for I tell thee I like thy clothes well. Moreover, I will be kind to thee, for I will feast straightway upon the good things that thou hast with thee, and thou shalt be bidden to the eating. At these words, he began slipping off his doublet, and the cobbler, seeing him so in earnest, began pulling off his clothes also, for Robin's garb tickled his eye. So each put on the other fellow's clothes, and Robin gave the honest cobbler ten bright new shillings. Quoth Merry Robin, I have been a many things in my life before, but never have I been an honest cobbler. Come, friend, let us fall to and eat, for something within me cackles aloud for that good fat capon. So both sat down and began to feast right lustily, so that when they were done, the bones of the capon were picked as bare as charity. Then Robin stretched his legs out with a sweet feeling of comfort within him. Quoth he, By the turn of thy voice, good Quince, I know that thou hast a fair song or two running loose in thy head like colts in a meadow. I prithee, turn one of them out for me. A song or two I have, quoth the cobbler. Poor things, poor things, but such as they are, thou art welcome to one of them. So, moistening his throat with a swallow of beer, he sang, Of all the joys, the best I love, Sing hey, my frisky nano, And that which most my soul doth move, it is the clinging cano. Can other bliss I throw away? Sing hey, my frisky nano. But this. The stout cobbler got no further in his song, for of a sudden, six horsemen burst upon them where they sat, and seized roughly upon the honest craftsman, hauling him to his feet, 
and nearly plucking the clothes from him as they did so. Ha! roared the leader of the band in a great big voice of joy. Have we then caught thee at last, thou blue-clad knave? Now, blessed be the name of Saint Hubert, for we are fourscore pounds richer this minute than we were before. For the good Bishop of Hereford hath promised that much to the band that shall bring thee to him. Oho, thou cunning rascal, thou wouldst look so innocent, forsooth. We know thee, thou old fox, but off thou goest with us to have thy brush clipped forthwith. At these words, the poor cobbler gazed all round him with his great blue eyes, as round as those of a dead fish, while his mouth gaped as if he had swallowed all his words and so lost his speech. Robin also gaped and stared in a wondering way, just as the cobbler would have done in his place. Alack a daisy me, quoth he, I know not whether I be sitting here or in no man's land. What is the meaning of all this stir in the pot, dear good gentleman? Surely this is a sweet, honest fellow. Honest fellow, saith thou clown, quoth one of the men. Why, I tell thee that this is that same rogue that men call Robin Hood. At this speech, the cobbler stared and gaped more than ever for there was such a threshing of thoughts going on within his poor head that his wits were all befogged with the dust and chaff thereof. Moreover, as he looked at Robin Hood and saw the yearman look so like what he knew himself to be, he began to doubt and think that, mayhap, he was the great outlaw in real sooth. Said he in a slow, wondering voice. Am I in very truth that fellow? Now I have thought. But nay, Quince, thou art mistook. Yet, am I? Nay, I must indeed be Robin Hood. Yet, truly, I had never thought to pass from an honest craftsman to such a great yearman. Alas, quoth Robin Hood. Look ye there now. See your ill treatment hath curdled the wits of this poor lad, and turned them all sour. I, myself, am Quince, the cobbler of Derby Town. Is it so? said Quince. Then indeed, I am somebody else, and can be none other than Robin Hood. Take me, fellows, but let me tell you that ye had laid hand upon the stoutest yearman that ever trod the woodlands. Thou wilt play madman, wilt thou? said the leader of the band. Here, Giles, fetch a cord and bind the knave's hands behind him. I warrant we will bring his wits back to him again when we get him safe before our good bishop at Tutbury Town. Thereupon, they tied the cobbler's hands behind him and led him off with a rope as the farmer leads off the calf he hath brought from the fair. 
Robin stood looking after them, and when they were gone, he laughed till the tears rolled down his cheeks, for he knew that no harm would befall the honest fellow, and he pictured to himself the bishop's face when good Quince was brought before him as Robin Hood. Then, turning his steps once more to the eastward, he stepped out right foot foremost towards Nottinghamshire and Sherwood Forest. But Robin Hood had gone through more than he wotted of. His journey from London had been hard and long, and in a sea night as he had travelled seven score and more of miles, he thought now to travel on without stopping until he had come to Sherwood. But ere he had gone a half score of miles, he felt his strength giving way beneath him, like a riverbank which the waters have undermined. He sat him down and rested, but he knew within himself that he could go no farther that day, for his feet felt like lumps of lead, so heavy were they with weariness. Once more he arose and went forward, but after travelling a couple of miles, he was fain to give the matter up, so, coming to an inn just then, he entered and called the landlord, bade him show him to a room, although the sun was only then just sinking in the western sky. There were but three bedrooms in the place, and to the meanest of these, the landlord showed Robin Hood. But little Robin cared for the looks of the place, for he could have slept that night upon a bed of broken stones. So, stripping off his clothes without more ado, he rolled into the bed and was asleep almost ere his head touched the pillow. Not long after Robin had so gone to his rest, a great cloud peeped blackly over the hills to the westward. Higher and higher it arose, until it piled up into the night like a mountain of darkness. All around and beneath it came ever and anon a dull red flash, and presently a short grim mutter of the coming of thunder was heard. Then up rode four stout burghers of Nottingham Town, for this was the only inn within five miles distance and they did not care to be caught in such a thunderstorm as this that was coming upon them. Leaving their nags to the stableman, they entered the best room of the inn, where fresh green rushes lay all spread upon the floor, and there called for the goodliest fare that the place afforded. After having eaten heartily, they bade the landlord show them to their rooms, for they were weary, having ridden all the way from Dronefield that day. So off they went, grumbling at having to sleep two in a bed. But their troubles on this score, as well as all others, were soon lost in the quietness of sleep. And now came the first gust of wind, rushing past the place, clapping and banging at the doors and shutters smelling of the coming rain, and all wrapped in a cloud of dust and leaves. As though the wind had brought a guest along with it, the door opened of a sudden, 
and in came a friar of Emmet Priory, and one in high degree, as was shown by the softness and sleekness of his robes and the richness of his rosary. He called to the landlord and bade him first have his mule well fed and bedded in the stable, and then to bring him to the very best there was in the house. So presently a savoury stew of tripe and onions with sweet little fat dumplings was set before him, likewise a good stout pottle of malmsey, and straightway the holy friar fell to with great courage and heartiness, so that in a short time naught was left but a little pool of gravy in the centre of the platter, not large enough to keep the life in a starving mouse. In the meantime, the storm broke. Another gust of wind went rushing by, and with it fell a few heavy drops of rain, which presently came rattling down in showers, beating against the cements like a hundred little hands. Bright flashes of lightning lit up every raindrop, and with them came cracks of thunder that went away rumbling and bumping as though saints within were busy rolling great casks of water across the round ground overhead. The woman folk screamed, and the merry wags in the tap room put their arms around their waists to soothe them into quietness. At last, the holy friar bade the landlord show him to his room. But when he heard that he was to bed with a cobbler, he was as ill-contented as any fellow you could find in all England. Nevertheless, there was nothing for it, and he must sleep there or nowhere. So, taking up his candle, he went off, grumbling like the now distant thunder. When he came to the room where he was to sleep, he held the light over Robin and looked at him from top to toe. Then he felt better pleased, for, instead of a rough, dirty bearded fellow, he beheld as fresh and clean a lad as one could find in a week of Sundays. So slipping off his clothes, he also huddled into the bed, where Robin, grunting and grumbling in his sleep, made room for him. Robin was more sound asleep, I wot, than he had been for many a day, else he would never have rested so quietly with one of the friar's sort so close beside him. As for the friar, he had known who Robin Hood was. You may well believe he would almost as soon have slept with an adder as with the man he had for a bedfellow. So the night passed comfortably enough but at the first dawn of day, Robin opened his eyes and turned his head upon the pillow. Then how he gasped and how he stared, for there beside him lay one all shaven and shorn, so that he knew that it must be a fellow of holy orders. He pinched himself sharply, but, finding he was awake, sat up in bed while the other slumbered as peacefully as though he was safe and sound at the home in Emmet Priory. Now, quoth Robin to himself, 
I wonder how this thing hath dropped into my bed during the night. So saying, he arose softly, so as not to waken the other, and looking about the room, he espied the friar's clothes lying upon a bench near the wall. First he looked at the clothes, with his head on one side. Then he looked at the friar, and slowly winked one eye. Quoth he, Good brother, whate'er thy name may be, as thou hast borrowed my bed so freely, I'll e'en borrow thy clothes in return. So saying, he straightway donned the holy man's garb, but kindly left the cobbler's clothes in place of it. Then he went forth into the freshness of the morning, and the stableman that was up and about the stables opened his eyes as though he saw a green mouse before him, for such men as the friars of Emmet were not wont to be early risers. But the man bottled his thoughts and only asked Robin whether he wanted the mule brought from the stable. Yea, my son, quoth Robin, albeit he knew naught of the mule, and bring it forth quickly, I prithee, for I am late and must be jogging. So presently the stableman brought forth the mule, and Robin mounted it, and went on his way rejoicing. As for the holy friar, when he arose, he was in as pretty a stew as any man in all the world, for his rich, soft robes were gone, likewise his purse with ten gold pounds in it, and naught was left but patched clothes and a leathern apron. He raged and swore like a layman, but as his swearing mended nothing, and the landlord could not aid him, and as, moreover, he was forced to be at Emmet Priory that very morning upon matters of business. He was fain either to don the cobbler's clothes or travel the road in nakedness. So he put on the clothes and, still raging and swearing vengeance against all the cobblers in Derbyshire, he set forth upon his way afoot, but his ills had not yet done with him, for he had not gone far ere he fell into the hands of the king's men, who marched him off, willy-nilly, to Tutbury Town and the Bishop of Hereford. In vain he swore he was a holy man, and showed his shaven crown. Off he must go, for nothing would do but that he was Robin Hood. Meanwhile, Mary Robin rode along contentedly, passing safely by two bands of the king's men, until his heart began to dance within him because of the nearness of Sherwood. So he travelled ever to the eastward, till, of a sudden, he met a noble knight in a shady lane. Then Robin checked his mule quickly and leaped from off its back. Now, well met, Sir Richard of Lee, cried he, for rather than any other man in England would I see thy good face this day. Then he told Sir Richard all the happenings that had befallen him, and that now at last he felt himself safe, being so nigh to Sherwood again. But when Robin had done, 
Sir Richard shook his head sadly. Thou art in greater danger now, Robin, than thou hast yet been, said he. For before thee lie bands of the sheriff's men, blocking every road and letting none pass through the lines without examining them closely. I myself know this, having passed them but now. Before thee lies the sheriff's men, and behind thee the king's men, and thou canst not hope to pass either way, for by this time they will know of thy disguise, and will be in the waiting to seize upon thee. My castle and everything within it are thine, but naught could be gained there, for I could not hope to hold it against such a force as is now in Nottingham of the kings and the sheriff's men. Having so spoken, Sir Richard bent his head in thought, and Robin felt his heart sink within him like that of the fox that hears the hound at his heels and finds his den blocked with earth so that there is no hiding for him. But presently, Sir Richard spoke again, saying, One thing thou canst do, Robin, and one only. Go back to London and throw thyself upon the mercy of our good Queen Eleanor. Come with me straightway to my castle. Doff these clothes and put on such as my retainers wear. Then I will hie me to London town with a troop of men behind me, and thou shalt mingle with them, and thus will I bring thee to where thou mayest see and speak with the Queen. Thy only hope is to get to Sherwood, for there none can reach thee, and thou wilt never get to Sherwood but in this way. So Robin went with Sir Richard of the Lee, and did as he said, for he saw the wisdom of that which the knight advised, and that this was his only chance of safety. Queen Eleanor walked in her royal garden, amid the roses that bloomed sweetly, and with her walked six of her ladies-in-waiting, chattering blithely together. Of a sudden, a man leaped up to the top of the wall from the other side, and then, hanging for a moment, dropped lightly upon the grass within. All the ladies-in-waiting shrieked at the suddenness of his coming, but the man ran to the queen and kneeled at her feet, and she saw that it was Robin Hood. Why, how now, Robin? cried she. Dost thou dare to come into the very jaws of the raging lion? Alas, poor fellow, thou art lost indeed if the king finds thee here. Dost thou not know that he is seeking thee through all the land? Yes, quoth Robin. I do know right well that the king seeks me, and therefore I have come, for, surely, no ill can befall me when he hath pledged his royal word to your majesty for my safety. Moreover, I know your majesty's kindness and gentleness of heart, and so I lay my life freely in your gracious hands. I take thy meaning, Robin Hood, said the queen and that thou dost convey reproach to me, as well thou mayest, 
for I know that I have not done by thee as I ought to have done. I know right well that thou must have been hard pressed by peril to leap so boldly into one danger to escape another. Once more, I promise thee mine aid, and will do all I can to send thee back in safety to Sherwood Forest. Bide thou here till I return. So saying, she left Robin in the Garden of Roses, and was gone a long time. When she came back, Sir Robert Lee was with her, and the Queen's cheeks were hot, and the Queen's eyes were bright, as though she had been talking with high words. Then Sir Robert came straight forward to where Robin stood, and he spoke to the yearman in a cold, stern voice. Quoth he, Our gracious sovereign the king hath mitigated his wrath towards thee, fellow, and hath once more promised that thou shalt depart in peace and safety. Not only hath he promised this, but in three days he will send one of his pages to go with thee, and see that none arrest thy journey back again. Thou mayest thank thy patron saint that thou hast such a good friend in our noble queen, for, but for her persuasion and arguments, thou hast been a dead man, I can tell thee. Let this peril that thou hast passed through teach thee two lessons. First, be more honest. Second, be not so bold in thy comings and goings. A man that walketh in the darkness as thou dost may escape for a time, but in the end he will surely fall into the pit. Thou hast put thy head in the angry lion's mouth, and yet thou hast escaped by a miracle. Try it not again. So saying, he turned and left Robin, and was gone. For three days Robin abided in London in the Queen's household, and at the end of that time the King's head page, Edward Cunningham, came, and taking Robin with him, departed northward upon his way to Sherwood. Now and then they passed bands of King's men coming back again to London, but none of those bands stopped them, and so, at last, they reached the sweet leafy woodlands. <laughs>